We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 26 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Friday, March 26, 2021. Happy Friday. And it is a loaded show. Maybe the most loaded show yet. And that's saying something, because I do five of these shows every week. Every weekday, Monday through Friday, you get an installment of the podcast. Out by 5 a.m., but able to be listened to whenever is convenient for you. Your DC Sports Express. But yes, jam-packed show today. Another signing by the Washington football team on Thursday, receiver Adam Humphreys. What is Washington getting in Humphreys? What does Washington signing Humphreys tell us? Uh, two special guests on the show today, both having to do with the Washington football team. Guest number one, Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast, one of the smartest guys out there when it comes to talking NFL, and a huge fan of what Washington has done in free agency with Ryan Fitzpatrick, Curtis Samuel, William Jackson the third. We go in-depth in all three acquisitions, especially Fitzpatrick. I promise you, you don't want to miss that. Guest number two, Marty Conway an adjunct professor at Georgetown, a man who knows sports business very well. He will give us his perspective on the mega Dan Snyder news that the Danny is buying out his three disgruntled minority investors with the Washington football team. Dwight Shar, Robert Rothman, Fred Smith. There's so much to what's going on here. We talk so much about it on Thursday's podcast, but this, of course, is a big deal. You know, not only isn't Danny going anywhere, Danny is becoming more powerful than ever before. The exact opposite of what people thought might happen and wanted to happen is happening. It's incredible. You can Google that. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. Yes, Danny, what you've pulled off is very, very hard to do. We probably should Google that. Uh, Marty Conway, by the way, also used to work for the Orioles. So we'll discuss the future of their ownership situation. Is the Angelos family getting ready 
to sell the team. Also, on this Friday installment of the Al Goldie podcast, I will talk Capitals off another win for them on Thursday night. I will talk Wizards off another loss for them on Thursday night. And also a trade on what was NBA trade deadline day. Troy Brown Jr. and Mo Wagner, two guys buried by Scott Brooks, now gone. I'll talk Nationals. We actually have a ton of Nats news to discuss including Juan Soto leaving Thursday evening's exhibition game early. Davey Martinez revealing that he's open to using openers. I can't tell you how excited I was when I saw that. And Gio Gonzalez is retiring. I will provide a proper goodbye to Gio. And don't worry, I'll be nice. I'll be nice. Uh, I mentioned the O's. Big news for them on Thursday. Matt Harvey has made the season opening rotation. We'll get into that. And we even have Georgetown news to dissect. Kudis Wahab is transferring. Yes, yet another transfer for the Hoyas with Patrick Ewing as head coach. So much for all of the good vibes of winning the Big East tournament. Why are so many guys transferring from Georgetown? So I told you, a loaded show on this Friday. You can email me, the Algaldi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Algaldi. Got this tweet from Will. Love your show, Al. Thank you, Will. Keep the theme music. My five-year-old granddaughter now says, away we go when she hears the music. I love it. I love it. Yes, uh, we are huge in the five-year-old demographic. Paw Patrol and the Al Galdi podcast. Both kill it with the five-year-olds. Uh, email from Mark Bennett on my rant on Wednesday's podcast on why the name the Washington football team should not be the permanent name. Uh, he writes, love the take, but keep the football team Al, think of it as your intro music. Horrible, but it's crazy good now. Football team. I'd not consider that, Mark. It's actually a very interesting way of framing things. But no, I still am not a fan of Washington football team as the permanent name. Temporary, fine. Permanent, uh, no thank you. By the way, we have moved back up the charts on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Number 27 in the country as of early Friday morning. One spot behind Bill Barnwell. We are, though, now behind Peter King, so we got to fix that. But yeah, up to back to being in the top 30 in the country in the U.S. football category on Apple Podcasts. So we have even more momentum as we charge into the weekend. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word about the podcast. A thank you again to all of you for your continued support of what we're doing here. And if you want to get on board with supporting this podcast, email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo. All right. Well, we talked on Thursday's pod about whether Washington was done in free agency when it came to receiver. Uh, The answer, it turns out, was no. So on Thursday morning, we had a bunch of reports that the Washington football team was going to be meeting with unrestricted free agent receiver Adam Humphreys. And kind of the tone of these reports was that a deal could get done on that day. And done a deal was, as on Thursday evening, Washington did officially announce the signing of Adam Humphreys. The contract reportedly is a one-year deal. And this is a very interesting acquisition on a number of levels. And I do think this is a smart acquisition. First of all, it's a one-year deal. I mean, it's obviously not for like massive money or anything like that. You can almost never go wrong with a one-year deal. Even if the guy ends up doing nothing here, you've got all this cap room. It's certainly worth bringing on board someone who you think could help you. It's not like Washington is committing a ton to Adam Humphreys. He's going into his age 28 season. He's listed as being 5'11". He is a classic slot receiver. Adam Humphreys over his 227 offensive snaps for the Tennessee Titans last regular season, lined up in the slot 83.3% of the time 
per roto wire. So there's really no mystery here with what you're getting. He's a 5'11 white guy who lines up in the slot a bunch, okay? Like, th- th- there's no real debate about, like, how Washington envisions using him. And so you have to ask the question, right? Well, Washington just signed Curtis Samuel. We thought he might be the slot receiver. And well, Washington last season had Steven Sims as a guy who was in the slot a bunch and had projected to be someone who could maybe be Washington's top slot guy for years to come. Uh, now you certainly have to rethink that. I think the signing of Humphreys tells us two things very clearly. Number one, Curtis Samuel is going to be deployed everywhere. And this is what I wanted when Washington signed Samuel. But of course, you don't know until you know. And this, I think, pretty clearly tells us now that Washington has brought Humphreys on board, Curtis Samuel is going to be deployed everywhere. We know that Curtis Samuel offers this position flex, right? He has excelled not only as a pass catcher, but also as a ball carrier. Curtis Samuel was a running back, in fact, at Ohio State. But understand about Curtis Samuel and like what he was for the Carolina Panthers in 2020. He lined up everywhere. If you go to the data per roto wire, Curtis Samuel last regular season for the Panthers, 659 offensive snaps. He lined up in the slot 67.5% of the time. So no doubt he was mostly a slot receiver, but certainly not entirely. Uh, Samuel lined up tight 12% of the time lined up in the backfield 11.6% of the time, lined up on the outside 9% of the time. You know, this thing of like Curtis Samuel and he can't line up on the outside. No, actually he can, you know? And that's the way it works now in the NFL. Like when someone is referred to as a slot receiver, that means that the guy primarily or mostly lines up in the slot, but it doesn't mean that he lines up there entirely. And some slot guys, quote unquote, line up in the slot more than others. So yeah, Curtis Samuel did a lot of his damage out of the slot last season, but he also lined up a good chunk of the time in other spots, including, like I said, in the backfield. 11.6% of Curtis Samuel's offensive snaps came with him lined up in the backfield. We didn't know when Washington signed Samuel, well, okay, is he going to be here and line up in the slot like, you know, I don't know, 80% of the time, or is it going to be more along the lines of what the deployment was with the Panthers? Signing Adam Humphreys, I think, clearly communicates, yeah, Washington is going to have Curtis Samuel lining up all over the place. And that is precisely to me the way you use a guy like Curtis Samuel, a guy with, remember, 4-3-1 speed. Like this guy is a burner. This guy is someone who can inflict damage in all kinds of ways. Let him do that. Don't box him in. Don't have him fit your role. You know, I always feel like in the NFL, when people talk about X receivers, Y receivers, Z receivers, I I get the idea behind that. But I think some of that can, I think so much of that can be so overrated. And it's like, you should be able to line up everyone everywhere. And it's interesting with Washington because last season, Washington did line up a bunch of different guys in the slot. Washington in the 2020 regular season per, per roto wire had six players who each lined up in the slot on at least a hundred offensive snaps. Logan Thomas, Terry McLaurin, Steven Sims, Isaiah Wright, Cam Sims and J.D. McKissick. So there's all kinds of ways that guys get used. You shouldn't get set in using a guy a way, and that's the only way, especially someone as talented and as diverse as Curtis Samuel. So the first thing the Adam Humphrey signing tells us is Curtis Samuel is going to be deployed everywhere. But the second thing that the Adam Humphrey signing clearly tells us is Stephen Sims is in trouble, okay? And I was as excited about Steven Sims as anyone going into last season. He played very well in December of 2019, that final month of his rookie season. He and actually Dwayne Haskins had a good thing going on. Steven Sims over the last five games of his 2019 rookie season, 23 catches for 259 yards and four touchdowns on 40 targets. The four touchdowns came 
over the final three games. He became a real red zone weapon for Washington as that 2019 season went on. But last season, a major disappointment for Steven Sims. He missed four games due to a toe injury. He was guilty of way too many drops. He did have his moments, including that touchdown catch in the playoff loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field on Super Wild Card Weekend. The touchdown catch was actually really impressive. That Taylor Heineke, fourth quarter, third and 10, 11-yard TD toss to Sims Heineke, making that touchdown pass after having just gotten his left shoulder taped up. And Steven Sims doing a great job, if you remember, of dragging his left cleat to stay in bounds in the end zone. And that score very much made it a game, right? The ensuing Dustin Hopkins extra point cut Washington's deficit to 28-23. So it's not like Steven Sims was a total nothing in 2020, but it was disappointing. There's no doubt. The drops were a real issue for Steven Sims in 2020. You go back to the 30-27 loss at the Detroit Lions in week 10. Steven Sims, a drop on an Alex Smith pass in the fourth quarter. The 23-17 win at the Pittsburgh Steelers in week 13. Steven Sims, a drop on an Alex Smith third down pass on a play that should have resulted in a first down on a drive that resulted in a first quarter three and down. Steven Sims also, of course, was really bad on punt returns in 2020. Average of 6.7 yards over 24 punt returns had way too many fumbles, including what went down in that week 17, 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles to clinch the NFC East. Sims, a fourth quarter zero yard return off a muff catch of a punt for yet another fumble. And Sims thankfully recovered that ball, but he did so at the Washington 25. That play could have been disaster given that Washington was nursing a 2014 lead. So yeah, uh, Steven Sims is in trouble. And right now you have to say the likelihood of him making the season opening 53-man roster, not exactly sky high. Adam Humphreys was signed by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as an undrafted free agent out of Clemson in 2015. He played for the Bucs from 2015 through 2018, including in 2017 and 2018 with, yes, Ryan Fitzpatrick, at quarterback. Now, Fitzmagic was not the only quarterback used by the Bucks in the 17 and 18 seasons. Fitzpatrick, over those two years, 14 games with 10 starts. So it's not like it was just Humphreys working with Fitzpatrick over those two years. But those two seasons are Humphreys' two best seasons. 2017, Adam Humphreys over 16 games, 61 receptions for 631 yards and a touchdown on 83 targets. 2018, Adam Humphreys over 16 games, 76 receptions for 816 yards and five touchdowns on 105 targets. He has been productive. His two most productive seasons came with Ryan Fitzpatrick as one of the quarterbacks. Now, Humphreys did then sign with the Tennessee Titans in March 2019, but the Titans just released him last month. And it was a disappointing last two seasons for Adam Humphreys. So you got to be aware of that, right? It's not, it's not like just you're getting a guy for whom there are zero flaws here. Adam Humphreys has played in just 19 games over the last two regular seasons with the Titans. 2019, Humphreys played in just 12 regular season games, missed the Titans' final four regular season games, and then the Titans' first two playoff games due to an ankle injury. And the Titans uh, won those two playoff games without Humphreys, right? Those wins at the New England Patriots and the Baltimore Ravens. And then this past season, Humphreys played in just seven regular season games. He missed a game in October, due to being on the Titans reserve COVID-19 list, and then missed eight of the Titans' final nine regular season games and the loss to the Baltimore Ravens on Super Wildcard Weekend due to a concussion. So this is a guy missed a lot of time in 2019 due to an ankle injury, missed a lot of time this past season due to a concussion. That's always worrisome. I mean, this has become a very big deal for me, and I know for a lot of you, of 
signing guys with injury histories and counting on guys who've had a hard time staying healthy, staying healthy for you. But like I said, it's only a one-year deal. You know, you're not committing to this guy for multiple seasons. You're not throwing at this guy a bunch of guaranteed money. We'll see what the terms of the contract end up being. But even if it's halfway decent money for this coming season, it is just a one-year deal. So if he can't stay healthy, if this doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. But very clearly, Washington is trying to beef itself up at receiver. And very clearly, Washington did not view Steven Sims as, okay, he'll be our slot guy. Or Curtis Samuel, we're signing him to just be our slot guy. No, I think ideally Washington goes into this season with Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and probably Adam Humphreys as those top three receivers. Like I say probably because Washington, of course, has re-signed Cam Sims. We talked about that on Thursday's podcast, Cam officially signing his restricted free agent tender. But remember what that tender was and, you know, always follow the money as the saying goes, Washington only tendered Cam Sims at a low round right of first refusal level. I think that tells you about what Washington thinks of Cam Sims. Washington, I think, likes Cam, sees promise in Cam, but doesn't view Cam as, okay, like we got to have him back. We got to pay him what we need to pay him. And he's definitely going to be one of our top three guys going into the 2021 season. Cam, like Steven, an issue with drops in 2020. And Cam's had a problem with drops, you know, even prior to the 2020 season. So Adam Humphrey's on board. You know, he also has served as a punt returner and a kickoff returner, though he hasn't exactly been dynamic in those roles. Uh, Four seasons for Humphreys as a punt return man, 2016 through 2019, 63 punt returns, an average of 7.98 yards per punt return, but no punt returns for touchdowns. His longest punt return uh, just for 25 yards. And uh, when it comes to being a kickoff return man, just six kickoff returns for Adam Humphreys uh, in his NFL career. So I, I don't think that they're signing him to be a return man, although I guess he can do it if they need him to do it. And who knows, they may need him to do it because Punt returns especially have been a major problem for Washington in recent seasons. But yes, what we figured Washington needed to beef up big time this offseason, Washington has addressed very much already in free agency, signing Curtis Samuel, signing Adam Humphreys, and I still do not dismiss at all Washington drafting a receiver at some point. This is set to be a loaded draft at receiver. If you're a good team, you don't get caught up in, well, we already have enough receivers, we don't need to take a receiver you go best player available and you know you always understand you're only you're always an injury or two away from an area of strength becoming an area of concern right you 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 want to always layer your roster you want to have your roster at a point to where you're not overly dependent on any one person or any set of persons you know that okay if this guy goes down you do have that next man up dynamic working for you to where you got different people you can go to. Now, I do like, I mean, I like prior to the Humphrey signing what Washington had at receiver moving forward. But obviously, Ron Rivera and company were not in love with what they had, wanted to do more, and now have done more with Adam Humphreys. And I would think at this point, Washington is done in terms of significant veteran acquisitions at receiver. And still, the draft could provide some more depth. But I would be surprised now if a starting caliber receiver, I mean, there aren't that many left, but if a, if another starting caliber receiver is brought on board, it does appear McLaurin, Samuel, and Humphreys, that's what Washington is eyeing in terms of the top three receivers for 2021. As for who is going to be throwing to those receivers, is it going to be Ryan Fitzpatrick? Great insight on Fitzmagic coming up in moments with Sam Monson of Pro Football Focus. 
And just like opposing defenses are going to be stressing, going to be fearing what our football team can throw at them this coming season. If you've ever had to sell a home, you know about the stress of the commission. How much are you going to have to pay? How much should you have to pay? How much is this real estate agent working for me going to be plucking from what I'm getting for my home? Outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for way too long. John Grandland is changing that. My guy, John G. with Real Broker is going to sell your home for free. That's right, for free. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Zero commission, but top-notch service. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure that you're not hunting for buyers for months on end. And when John finds you an offer and you sell your home, what you would normally pay to your listing agent stays right in your pocket. And then John Granlund helps you find the home of your dreams and everyone feels right at home. Expansive services at the lowest commission possible. Zero. You can't go lower than zero. John Granlund is changing the game. To find out more about this program, to find your home's value, visit johngsellsforfree.com. Website says it all. John G sells for free.com. Again, zero commission. This is game changing. John G sells for free.com. Or better yet, call John Grandlin. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. 703 537 6747. That's 703 537 6747. And start packing. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst for Pro Football Focus, co-host of the PFF NFL podcast. Sam, it's great to talk to you again, man. How you doing? Doing good. How about you? Doing very well. Uh, great to have you on here. So I know you really like what the Washington football team has done in free agency so far. And you in an article that you co-authored and that came out this past Monday labeled Washington as having done an excellent job with the signings of Ryan Fitzpatrick, Curtis Samuel, and William Jackson the third. I feel the same way, but why do you like what Washington has done in free agency so much? Yeah, well, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick is a great gamble to take if you're a team that isn't in position to make this giant leap forward at the quarterback position. And, and Washington was in a tough spot. And they were in a very similar spot to the Indianapolis Colts, which is, look, this was a team that made the playoffs last year. Okay, the Colts did it with a better record, and, and Washington was – something of a, a beneficiary of the NFC East being what it was. But this is a good team, a young team, um, who because they were quite successful last year, they don't have an answer at quarterback. They've brought back Taylor Heineke, Alex Smith is gone, and they're not in position to necessarily trade for Deshaun Watson or Russell Wilson, and they're not really in position to trade way up in the draft and go looking for one of those top quarterbacks that's going to be gone in the top four, five, six picks. So at that point, what do you do? Do you, you know, punt on this year and try and, and come back next year? Or do you say, look, Ryan Fitzpatrick's not exciting, but this is a guy that has played at a middle of the pack level in terms of NFL quarterbacks for the past couple of seasons. You know, I think he's graded 15th overall in PFF grade the last two years. He's a viable quarterback. He can start and do a decent job. It won't be every week. There'll be some bad games in there and, those will, will get people nervous, but there'll be some good games in there as well. And overall, it's probably going to net out to somewhere in the middle. So you bring him in. I think that's a great low price gamble. And it's probably a, a similar, similar caliber player to what the Colts got in Carson Wentz when you didn't have to give up a potential first round pick to make it happen. 
And then to really make it sing, you go after receiver help and you get in a Curtis Samuel and you, you know, you start adding pieces for him to throw to and maximize the, your ability to have a good season out of Ryan Fitzpatrick. So I just think they've, they've made some really smart moves along the way and done the right things given where they were. Ryan Fitzpatrick is so interesting because he's one of those guys for whom the more you dig, the more you like. And the more I come across what you guys at Pro Football Focus have on Fitzpatrick, the more I get excited about what he could mean for Washington in 2021. The analytics really like him, and it's really not just the PFF stuff. Like He's been top 10 in the NFL in total QBR each of the last two seasons. Are the analytics too kind to Fitzpatrick, or has he genuinely been this good? I think he's been this good. I think the problem with Fitzpatrick is we know his limitations. You know, he's got a lower third physical tool set in terms of arm strength, in terms of all those kinds of things. He's not going to look like uh, Patrick Mahomes in terms of all those things that he can do with the ball. And he's going to have some bad games in there as well. There are negatives to his games, which often offset the good, but he'll put the ball in the air. And he's got this, he's got a great understanding at this point in his career of how to play around the limitations that he has. And, you know, he was caught on video on an NFL film clip sort of teaching this to Tua during the season. He's like, look, sometimes you're not going to be able to get to one to two to three to four in your progression. You're going to have to go one, two, maybe jump ball, you know, and he understands that. And this is, it's a great realization to have come to that. Look, if I can't fit the ball into every tight window going, and I, I can't buy myself endless amounts of time what I can do is understand where to go and just put the ball in the air and give my receiver a chance to make a play. And really for the last sort of five years, he's done a really good job of that. You go back to that year that he had, that was great with the, the Jets when they had Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker. Then with the Bucks, they had a great receiving core with Miami. He had a bunch of guys that were contested catch specialists. He sort of, you know, rescued the, the value of Devontae Parker, who was looking like a bust before Fitzpatrick arrived. So I think you're just dealing with a, with a quarterback that, you know, he's smart, obviously being from, from Harvard, he understands what he's doing, but he's also learned how to play the game given the physical tool set that he has. You know, he's not playing with the same equipment that everybody else is in terms of arm strength or, or some of those things, but he's figured out how to get it done despite that. And because he'll put the ball in the air a lot, he'll let those receivers actually earn their part of the, the deal. You know, some of these guys, He's letting his playmakers make plays. And I think that's really part of the job of being a quarterback. So with Fitzpatrick, of course, there is the age. He's going into his age 39 season. Do you look at that as cause for concern? Or are we just seeing the aging curve for quarterbacks evolve to where, hey, late 30s, even 40s, you can still get the job done and at a high level? Yeah, I think we, we definitely have to start bearing that in mind. You know, Tom Brady, obviously 43 and still going, looks like he's, looks as good as he ever has. Drew Brees finally hit the wall a year younger than that, but Aaron Rodgers at whatever he is, 38, still looks 100%. We're, I think we're reaching the stage where, you know, quarterbacks are definitely pushing deeper and deeper into their 30s and even in their 40s than they used to. And Fitzpatrick is probably in a good place as far as aging goes because he's never had the physical tools to rely on. So, you know, he's not losing a cannon for an arm and replacing it with something that's that requires reworking his entire game. If he starts to physically decline and lose some arm strength and a bit of mobility, you know, he's just moving from sort of one end of the spectrum to a little bit further on that spectrum. So I, I don't think it's going to be a huge problem for Fitzpatrick to age. And as I said, he's 
learned well how to play uh, despite those limitations anyway. In signing Fitzpatrick, Washington, of course, signed a placeholder, right? Like, I mean, if he ends up being Washington's starting quarterback for this coming season, that, that's obviously not a long-term solution. I'm just curious, philosophically speaking, how do you feel about Washington potentially having punted on finding a franchise quarterback this offseason? And I say potentially, I mean, look, Washington could still draft a quarterback, but, you know, if it doesn't, the idea of signing a guy going into his age 39 season as opposed to acquiring someone younger Given the importance of the position, how does that sit with you? This idea of like punting on the long term at quarterback for a year, maybe more. Well, I think in order to in order to say that they should have done something else, we need to come up with a better alternative. And I think that's the thing is that look, it's it's easy to criticize a team for potentially passing on a franchise quarterback and rolling the dice on a, an aged veteran if they had that opportunity. But you look at Washington, where they are in the draft, what the quarterbacks were available in this offseason. It's difficult to find an easy uh, alternative solution to what they did. I think that's why they went the route they did is they're not going to be in a position to go after one of those top quarterbacks in the draft. You know, even if they fell in love with Zach Wilson or Justin Fields, it would take one of those guys sliding a lot further than anybody thinks they're going to in the draft for them to make that move. And, you know, by the way, they're still not, they haven't ruled that out. Like if, if one of those guys does suddenly start to slide to the point where they're available or or, um, potentially on the market, you know, with a trade that Washington could go and get them. Ryan Fitzpatrick is not stopping you doing that. Neither is Taylor Heineke. Like they, they've not ruled that out, but they have given themselves a way to be successful and to be viable in 2021 without needing to go get one of those guys. So, you know, teams have done this in the past. It hasn't been, um, it's not exactly been most people's plan A, but there have been teams that have sort of muddled through a few years with a good roster, knowing that they're just not in position to find a quarterback in the future. The Vikings spent the better part of the, the 1990s doing this, just going from like Warren Moon to you know, this sequence of old veteran quarterbacks because they had a really good roster and it was always good enough to keep them away from the top few picks in the draft. And, you know, back then franchise quarterbacks didn't change hands in terms of free agency. So, it's been done before, and I think it is a smart way of doing it, given the roster that Washington has right now. Yeah, Randall Cunningham, 1998 with the Vikings. That's a great example right. in terms of this approach. You mentioned Taylor Heineke. There, of course, also is Kyle Allen. To what extent are those guys factors in your mind? Like, like to what extent should they be explored as maybe being potential solutions at quarterback? I don't think Kyle Allen should be a big factor. I think he at this point is a backup quarterback in the NFL. I, I don't, I think he's shown enough or had enough game time where it would be surprising. It would be a difficult thing to convince yourself of to give him more time on the off chance that he becomes a better player than we've seen so far. And I think it would take, you know, a confluence of injuries or suspensions or whatever it is for Kyle Allen to get that chance. Taylor Heineke is a little bit different because, I mean, he hasn't played much at all, but what we saw from him was spectacular. I mean, last season, the conference championship games featured the four top-graded quarterbacks in the NFL. Um, the fifth one was Deshaun Watson. I, all these quarterbacks, uh, incredible performances in the playoffs. The best single-game grade we saw was from Taylor Heineke, and it came against the Super Bowl champion. So, Look, Heineke has barely played. He's like 100 snaps last year and 90 the year before. But the 100 snaps last year, both you know, in, in the end of the Week 16 game and the, the wild card game, 
they were genuinely spectacular. I mean, he was phenomenal in that game. So it's such a small sample size that I don't think you can look at this and say, yeah, we're, we're comfortable rolling into the season with Taylor Heineke. But we know at some point there will be a stumble in Ryan Fitzpatrick's season. That's just the kind of quarterback he is. If Taylor Heineke gets a shot to play again this season, I think he could force himself into the, the long-term plans. I mean, if he comes into the lineup again, gets a couple of starts and, and posts, you know, 90 grades, has a ton of big-time throws, makes a couple of great runs again, basically replicates what he did in the playoffs, like at that point, he becomes a legitimate option going forward. Want to get your take on Curtis Samuel. So Washington clearly has made it a point to acquire hybrid players on offense. Samuel, Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick. Is there any argument against that? Or is that like 100% the way to go in today's NFL? No, I actually think it's smart. Um, the, the thing about it is they've, they've definitely targeted those players, but they haven't shown a great inclination of how to use them yet. Um, and the Curtis Samuel thing is interesting because – he played a ton. Um, obviously, he did that sort of hybrid role at Ohio State. Last season, he played a lot in the backfield. About 70 snaps lined up in the backfield out of basically 10% of his playing time. But you go back to the time where he was actually under the, the Ron Rivera coaching staff, and it was nothing like that. I mean, it was a couple of snaps here or there. It wasn't 10% of his playing time. So Last season, I think, was the best season we've seen from Curtis Samuel. It was also the year where he was featured a lot in the backfield. I I mean, I don't know if they're going to do that, if they've seen the light based off that season, and if they're moving in that direction. But for a coaching staff that does appear to be targeting this type of player, they haven't yet shown a great deal of creativity in terms of actually deploying them. And even, you know, Antonio Gibson, the same kind of thing. A guy Taylor made to split out wide and cause real personnel problems for defense but it was McKissick doing most of that. And, and Antonio Gibson was just being given the backfield carries and the, the routes out of the backfield. We didn't actually see him use much as a true hybrid player. So I'm, I'm all for assembling those types of players. I think they do stress defenses just by their presence on the field. But I would love to see the team show a little bit more creativity in how they're actually deploying yeah, uh, it's a great point. You know, hopefully better quarterback play maybe will convince them to go ahead and do those types of things because Washington's quarterback play in 2020 uh, overall was abysmal. One of the conversations we've had here in the D.C. area is, so, okay, Curtis Samuel gets $11.5 million per year. Kenny Galladay gets $18 million per year from the Giants. Corey Davis gets $12.5 million per year from the Jets. They're different receivers in terms of skill sets, no doubt. But I'm just curious, from Washington's perspective, would you rather have Samuel at 11.5 per year or Galladay at 18 or Davis at 12.5? Yeah, probably Curtis Samuel. Maybe Corey Davis, I think, would have been a good fit there as well at that cost. Um, the great thing Washington has in their favor is that they have Terry McLaurin. You know, they've got a true superstar number one. What they need is a foil for him or just something else in the offense that means teams can't just zero in all the attention on him. So a number two, a number three, just some other viable target that can be uh, that the ball can go to when teams lock in on on um, McLaren too much. So yeah, I don't think they really needed to go after a Kenny Galladay. I just think they needed a second complementary piece. And you know, Curtis Samuel is a, is a good option. He also allows the potential for somebody on the roster to emerge into that other number two spot, whether it's a Cam Sims 
um, or uh, Antonio Gandhi-Golden, who I really liked coming out, they've got the sort of big body possession guy that could potentially step into that role if, again, all the attention is now going to McLaren and, and now to Curtis Samuel as a, a slot and, and backfield threat. Want to get your take on William Jackson the third? So, Pro Football Focus had Jackson rated as the top free agent corner this offseason. Washington signed him, let Ronald Darby leave via free agency for Denver. Was that a trade up from Washington's perspective, in your opinion, or not necessarily? No, I think it probably was. Um, William Jackson, in theory, is the best cornerback available this offseason, but the the cornerback market was kind of chaos. All these guys have shown really good play in their past. It's just not necessarily been the most recent season, and, and there's there's gambles to be had all over the place. William Jackson, his first season in the NFL, not his rookie season because he lost all of that to a, a peck injury, I think, but his first actual year of playing time in 2017 was arguably the greatest statistical season we've ever seen from a cornerback. I mean, it was genuinely absurd. He allowed a pass rating that year of 36.1, which is lower than the pass rating of just throwing the ball away every play. Um, he allowed 35% of the passes thrown his way to be caught, didn't allow a touchdown all season, had 11 pass breakups, an interception, held Antonio Brown at the height of his ability to no catches across two games, and I think had four pass breakups in those two games. So he was going up against elite competition and absolutely dominated him. And at that point, we were like, oh, this guy is going to become the next Darrell Rivas. Like, he's the next great young cornerback in the NFL, and he's never really gotten close to that level of play again. Um, he's been good since then, and he's had you know, one bad year, two good ones since that point, but he hasn't, like, threatened that, that level of just being absolutely shut down and dominant again. But at the minimum, you should be able to expect him to come in and be a good quality starting cornerback and then there's always that, you know, specter in the background that, hey, maybe the stars align again. We get this ridiculous, like, unstoppable season out of them. One of the things that Pro Football Focus really has illuminated is the year-to-year nature of corners, how, you know, their, their grades, their performances do fluctuate. I wonder, I mean, it's a pass-happy NFL. Obviously, pass defense matters a ton. You want good corners. On the other hand, should you be investing big money in a position at which there is so little certainty and, and there is so much fluctuation? You know, almost like relief pitchers in baseball. And there's a school of thought in baseball that says you should never pay big money for relievers because they are so year to year. I, I just wonder, how do you reconcile that? Like, where are you when it comes to paying big money for corners? Yeah, it, it's certainly an argument. It, there, I think there's a bunch of different ways to go about building a secondary, for one. I don't think there's even like a clear, defined path right now. All the data says to us is that, look, coverage is actually probably a more important element of defense than pass rush is. So you should at least invest heavily in the secondary. Now the question becomes, well, how do you invest? Should you just make sure that all five guys in the secondary, your uh, two starting corners, your two starting safeties, then whoever your nickel is going to be, make sure all five of those guys are average, you know, minimum, just to make sure there's no weak link for teams to target? Or... You know, you can do what the Rams have done, which is, all right, let's throw everything at, like, the best cornerback in the NFL because that allows us to, to start helping everywhere else. And it means everybody else's life is easier because they can go and get, like, a guy like Troy Hill or Darius Williams, guys that are 5'10", 180 pounds, and can't cover a DK Metcalf because they're giving up six inches in height and 50 pounds in weight to a guy that can run faster than them. 
But if you make sure that if Jalen Ramsey's always on DK Metcalf, now you've got a guy going up against Tyler Lockett every every play. And it's not that Lockett's not a bad, not a good player, but Lockett is the same height, weight, and size and speed as these guys. So you make everybody's life in that secondary easier by essentially investing hugely in that one dominant playmaker. And even if he's going to get beat sometimes, because as he said, you know, the, the play of cornerbacks fluctuates just because he's taking that assignment, it makes everybody's life easier. So I, I don't know that there's a clear answer of which way is the right way of doing it. I think you can make a case that either way works, and, and it's sort of up to the the team making that decision at the time. One more for you, and I appreciate your time very much. So you hit on something that PFF came out with, I want to say like a year or so ago, and it was so revealing, and that is that pass coverage actually matters more than pass rush. And that goes against what a lot of us have been told for years, right? That no, it starts with pass rush, and then you worry about it pass coverage, but PFF has found that no, actually the opposite of that is true. Is that simply because of the quickness with which quarterbacks are getting rid of footballs these days, and so a pass rush can only do so much when a guy's getting rid of the ball, you know, 2.3 seconds or less? Yeah, that's a lot of it, and, you know, if you just think of the percentages, I mean, in in theory, let's say a good good edge rusher is going to be on, let's just make the numbers easy. A good edge rusher is going to play a thousand snaps in a season. He's going to get a hundred pressures in the year. I could say it's a, it's a tiny percentage of the number of snaps he's on the field for. A good cornerback is covering a guy that's important every single snap he's playing coverage. So if he screws up, um, it, it's a touchdown. Anytime he lapses and the quarterback sees it, it's game over. If a pass rusher gets stoned up the line, doesn't matter. It doesn't necessarily matter. Somebody else can get there. The cornerback can make the play on the back end. They get stoned at the line regularly all the time. It's it's the sort of how many pressures are you actually getting and how much are you moving the needle in your favor. So it's just that, you know, one cornerback can impact the passing game every single snap consistently throughout the course of the game. One pass rusher can't really do that. Even if he's the best guy there, you need like a stable like when the Philadelphia Eagles had a defensive front that went seven deep of guys that brought pressure, and every single game they were pressuring the quarterback 45% of his dropbacks, now you're moving the needle in a major way, but it's very hard to do that with one guy. And Aaron Donald is a great example, You know, the best pass rusher in the NFL by a distance. But if you want to, you can take Aaron Donald out of the game, and teams do. You know, There are games where Aaron Donald has two, three pressures, and not a great PFF grade, and it's because the ball comes out – 2.1 seconds every single time. They've just decided that Aaron Donald is not going to affect this game. It can be done. It's a lot harder to do that against a, an elite cornerback. Makes a lot of sense. Sam, awesome stuff. You guys are pro football focused. Do such a great job. Wish you nothing but continued success, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right, so the tournament is in full swing. The action hasn't disappointed, and the action is about to continue. Eight Sweet 16 games Saturday and Sunday. Will the Cinderella run continue for 15-seeded Oral Roberts? Will two-seeded Alabama, the team that eliminated my Maryland Terrapins, continue to roll? And what's going to happen with the three remaining one-seeds, Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan? Well, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is putting new customers in the center of the action. You bet $1 on any tournament game, and if your team wins, you win $100. It's that simple. You turn $1 into $100, 100 to 1 odds. Pick any college basketball team that's still in the hunt for your shot at winning $100. All it takes is a $1 bet, and that team winning 
It's next game. You can't beat that. There's no better way to put your college basketball knowledge to the test than to put your money where your mouth is with DraftKings Sportsbook. Do not worry, by the way, if college hoops isn't for you. DraftKings Sportsbook has 100 to 1 odds on select fighters for this weekend's UFC 260. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Here's what you do. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use this promo code, GALDI, when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 if the college basketball team of your choosing pulls off the win. That's code GALDI to turn $1 into $100 for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Virginia only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call the Virginia Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-532-3500. All right, so we on Thursday's podcast spent a lot of time on the major news from Wednesday. Multiple reports that Dan Snyder is buying out his three disgruntled minority investors with the Washington football team, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. A huge development to be sure, but also a complicated one. And so here to help us make sense of it all is Marty Conway, an adjunct professor at Georgetown, a man who knows sports business very well, spent 15 years working in Major League Baseball, worked for the Orioles, worked for the Texas Rangers, worked uh, for the commissioner's office, also has worked for AOL. Marty, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm good, Al. Thanks. and glad. Happy to be here. I appreciate you coming on. You know, it's funny, in reading your bio, I find it interesting that you got your BA from St. Leo University and now teach at Georgetown. And I'm sure you've heard this before, but John Thompson, back in the day, right, used to take all kinds of grief for always playing St. Leo. So <laughs> that just cracked me up when I saw that. Yeah, no, you're right about that. At the time, we, we stood to benefit from that Georgetown uh, game and financially and otherwise. But yeah, he did. But he, he stuck to his guns and said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to schedule my friends and people that need it. And it was, so it was a huge opportunity for St. Leo to come into Washington and raise money and all that. So yeah, it's a really interesting connection today. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right. So this news that Danny is buying out Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman and Fred Smith that the NFL's finance committee has approved this application from Dan for a $450 million debt waiver. And that apparently, though, I guess not definitely, this Beth Wilkinson investigation will result in nothing more than a fine. Has any of this surprised you or not really? Uh, no, the answer is no. It doesn't surprise me. Um, I mean, ultimately leagues, and, and I don't just say the NFL, but, you know, my experience in Major League Baseball and my knowledge of the NBA, for the most part, they move to protect their own interests, certainly, and they move to protect their own owners. I mean, when you look at the last decade, I guess, or more, it is so rare to find an owner who is you know, moved out of his ownership. And, and I would say, you know, Jerry Richardson was forced out, basically. Donald Sterling was forced out. Marge Schott was forced out. But though the bar there was so high uh, that I think all the other owners could get on board. And so I think they have some deep concerns about making moves like this because who knows what happens to them in the future and they don't really want to set that sort of precedent. So my answer kind of, kind of simply is no, it doesn't surprise me. In terms of the price at which Dan is buying out the minority owners, $875 million per the New York Times. You do the math on that, right? 40.5% stake that works out to a valuation of $2.16 billion. We know that's low for Washington. Is this as simple as the minority shares on their own not having proportionate worth to the team as a whole because those shares don't offer a definite path to majority ownership? 
Yeah, I think in, in the business world, there's something called sort of a standard non-control discount, right? And any limited partner that's ever been involved in something like, like this sort of understands this. Look, you go into limited partnerships because you either don't have the wherewithal to, to do it all or you're brought in to bring additional equity, right? You finance things through either equity or debt and, and the, you know, the interest that you pay on debt versus taking in an equity. And when you look at limited partnerships in sports, there are so few reasons to have them, but a couple of them stand out. Number one is, look, you just, you know, you know something about the organization or the other owner or the other owners and you want to be part of that. The second is maybe there's some operating interest that you have. You, you're, you're an executive in the media part. And so you bring some additional value to there. Um, but, but, and, and the third one, which really happens in the NFL is you come in as a limited partner. You get the vetting by the league in order to get approved, and then you're in a position to step forward like David Tepper did when he was a minority partner of the Steelers to be in position A to buy the Panthers when they became available quickly. Um, so there's not many reasons to be a limited partner, really, and there's really not many reasons to be at 40% and to, you know, to put that kind of money in liquidity out there when you could clearly do something else where you'd gain a much bigger return. So this has been building, though, Al, over time. Look, this group bought back in 2003, and from what I understand, they bought 20% at that point. Clearly, they've acquired more stake over time, and I think that's probably Dan Snyder looking for more equity to pay down debt or other things that he had. And so their shares built to what's reported to be 40%. At that point, if you're at 40%, you really need to be at 51 or more because you're at the point where you've put so much liquidity and you don't have any control. You almost have to find a way to either force the owner to sell everything and inflate your share price or get yourself out because you're, you're not going to maximize, you're not going to go any further in terms of maximizing your investment. What do you make of the ugliness of this situation that it was Fred Smith's company FedEx that really got the whole name change movement to an entirely new level last summer that Danny has alleged that Dwight Shaw has been behind this smear campaign on Dan. I mean, this really has been, you know, something like off the back pages of a New York tabloid, what's gone on here. It's obviously become very public. What do you make of just how ugly the whole thing became? Yeah, how many times do you see an Indian media company quoted as part of yeah. a process like that? That's how incredibly bizarre it is. But look, something has happened along the way. I suspect that, look, one of the other things about being a limited partner is you do get some dividend distribution based on profit of the company. And so if those – and we know that NFL teams should be incredibly profitable. It's very difficult, if, if not impossible, to lose money as an owner of an NFL team. When those reportedly those dividend payments stopped to owners and who knows what that was. So they've been recouping some of their investment along the way. Well, when that stopped, and I'm sure it had something to do with the minority partners looking to put their shares on the, on the market without Dan's permission, whatever it was. And that's probably when the ugliness started. And as this group reportedly found inability to monetize their shares, I think they had the potential to sell them to somebody. And Dan Snyder wasn't going to approve that. So they were sort of boxed in. And they apparently, you know, took the unprecedented step of leaking some information and trying to create this cloud around the organization, a la Donald Sterling, that maybe would force the team to be sold at 100% and they could monetize their shares in a maximum way. So it really is is bizarre how this transpired. But look, 
net net, the way this looks like it's coming down, if they did have buyers in the range of $900 million for their 40%, and now they're going to get somewhere close to that 875 million is what's been reported, they're actually probably going to get at least what they were looking for on their way out. These are people who probably put in 60 or $70 million 17 years ago. And so if you do the math, maybe that looks like a four or five X profit over that time. As a private equity person, you're looking for that return much faster than 17 years. But look, it is what it is, and they determined it was best to get out. Now, the other part of that is this is now possible. Dan Snyder is now able to do this, raise his debt limit, because of the massive media deal that was just passed a couple of weeks ago. And now the value of that team, he's going to get an additional $300 million incrementally each year from media, their share of the media deals. So suddenly the valuation inflates. They can raise the debt limit. He can go out and find $475 million in the, in the debt market. And he can um, take that with some other money that he has and, and, and buy out essentially now own control 100% with his, with his family. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. So it's incredible, right? In, in this court cutting landscape, the NFL has just more than doubled its national television contracts from about $5 billion per year to more than $10 billion per year. You would think if you're Shaw, Rothman and Smith, why not just wait a few years? The value of the franchise is only going to continue to rise with this new television money and then try to get out, then try to sell. But it was like, no, they really wanted to do it. Right now, what do you make of that aspect of it? They couldn't even like hold on for another few years to try to get more money for their shares. Well, I think there's a dynamic, Al, that's going on in the NBA. We'll talk about that in a second. But as the value of these franchises really rifles up in terms of overall top value, what they're finding in the marketplace is there are fewer and fewer people who are willing to invest in a limited partnership share. Again, 20%, 30%, 40% right now at a $3.5 billion value, let's say, for the Redskins, that's well over a billion dollars of liquidity that you'd have to put into that. There just aren't that many people, A, that have it, B, that are willing to do it and put it into a situation where they don't have control or they don't really have any operating opportunity. So having said that, I think they found that the market for limited partner shares probably is reaching its max. NBA has determined that. And they've actually set up a process now where they're allowing hedge funds and other investment funds to come in and make investments in not just one team, but more than one team, provide the sort of liquidity that ownership seems to need over the last year uh, because of lots of other issues, or replacing the fact that they really can't find these people who are willing to take 10 or 20% shares and not really have anything except waiting for the next NFL team. So there's a combination of the market that we don't see, which is the limited part, the market for limited partner shares of sports teams has really taken a dynamically different direction than it did 15 years ago. We're talking with sports business expert Marty Conway, an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Do you believe that Dan is going to have to bring new minority investors on board or not necessarily given this new TV money? Well, if you look at it, according to what we know, uh, reported is that he's going to be able to increase his debt ceiling by over $400 million. They're going to pay out the limited partners close to $900 million. According to, again, what we've read, the debt payment needs to be repaid by 2028, right? So he's got about seven years to figure that out. And the question then becomes, can he finance that himself or does he have to take in, refinance the debt along the way? That's a possibility as long as rates stay low or find other equity interest who are willing to come in to do it. Uh, he doesn't see, look, Dan Snyder reminds me a lot of Peter Angelos. 
their, their, their business philosophies are quite similar. And that is they really don't do partnerships. Well, like they just don't really share in terms of their partnerships. They do have partners who provide some liquidity, but they don't really get any operating control or any, anything like that. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this happens over time. I think there's a possibility that he will have to take in a partner somehow to bring in liquidity because equity is great. doesn't cost you anything. Um, but that's a decision that maybe he and his, his family and others make in the future. And I think some of that depends, Al, on what happens with the new stadium, what happens in that time frame between now and 2028, which I think is the magic mark why that date was picked. Because if he doesn't have a new stadium in place or a media horizon by then, then I think there's some other bigger issues with the franchise. That's a great point about that year 2028 and what that may well mean. Sort of lurking as all this Washington football team ownership stuff has been going on has been this Jeff Bezos factor and this notion that he very much wants to become an NFL owner, obviously is establishing ties here in the D.C. area with Amazon. If you're Jeff Bezos, you're worth what he's worth. You want to be an NFL owner. What do you think is his best path to doing that? Becoming a minority owner, maybe possibly with Washington, or just waiting for the occasion whenever it presents itself to actually buy an NFL team as a majority owner? I wouldn't be surprised for him to become a limited partner somewhere. And I say this because there's no better way to really, as much as he's in the box with Roger Goodell and other owners, there really isn't any other way to really understand how the NFL works and how a team works and to get that opportunity to be looking at income statements and operating cash flows and other things of the sort. So I, I think it's possible. Now, interestingly, he's stepping aside as CEO of, of Amazon later this summer. He's going to move into sort of a, a non-executive chairman role. I think that actually increases the likelihood that he gets involved in the NFL because I think as he would be CEO of a company, there could be some real conflicts there, right, that Amazon Prime is now going to be the Thursday night television provider. He owns a team. I actually think about, I actually think that distance that he created between himself and, and Amazon actually puts him in a better position to do that. But look, these limited partner shares or team ownership shares just don't come up in the NFL very often. These are largely family run organizations. They're handing them down. And unless and until something unusual happens in a family dispute in Denver and there was one in Tennessee and some other places, the rest of the league, 25 out of those 32 teams, seem to me to be pretty secure in their family interest, handing it down. So if his only path is through limited partners until something happens, maybe that's what it will be. I do want to ask you about the Orioles, given that you work for them. So as you well know, the talk for years has been that the O's will be sold by Peter Angelos' sons once Peter passes. I mean, not to be macabre here, but we know he's been in, in uh, poor health for a while. Uh, the, the team obviously has cut costs big time in recent years while rebuilding. We've all seen the drastic cost cutting going on at Masson, which is, of course, owned by the Orioles. Do you believe that the Angelos boys will, in fact, sell the team? Uh, I do. Here's why. Uh, from the last two years, maybe more since Peter has been even less and less removed since the Chris Davis deal, things like that. I, I don't see from my experience, I'm just speaking from my experience, I don't see ownership identified ownership, John Angelos, his brother, et cetera, stepping into the day-to-day market community. When you're an owner or son of an owner, whatever it is, you have a daily, weekly, monthly presence in the community. You're making connections in corporate relations and things like that. 
and and he's just not doing that. They're not doing that. Uh, Mike Elias is the GM. He's probably the most known name out there. And so I, I don't think so. I don't think also that Major League Baseball would be that interested in seeing that family continue. Look, Peter Angelos has owned the Orioles longer than any other previous ownership. I mean, you go back to Edward Bennett Williams, Jerry Hoffberger, all of that. He's owned it longer. One of the things that revitalizes a franchise, whether it's in Kansas City or Detroit or Baltimore, is when ownership actually turns over because they bring in some new perspectives, new marketing, new initiatives, new media, things like that. Right now, I think there's a connection between the Masson enterprise and the Orioles enterprise is such that I don't think those can be separated and you can get real value. I think they're going to have to be sold together. And so, right, yeah, I do see common cost-cutting on the Masson side. I do see common cost-cutting on the Orioles side. And I think it's a matter of time before we see sort of the end result here and, and where it goes from there, whether it's in a year or two years or more. Do you look at the Orioles as a sleeping giant, as a super attractive club to buy, or do you look at the Orioles as, you know, I mean, look, we know about the problems in the city of Baltimore. We know about some of the attendance issues for the O's, even when they were good in recent years. You know, Masson is not exactly this, you know, extravagant regional cable network. Would there be problems trying to find a buyer for the Orioles or maybe not getting as much money for the Orioles as the Angelos family might want? Well, I don't think there'd be any trouble finding a buyer. Uh, that's number one. I don't think it would be too much trouble finding the right price. Look, at the end of the day, the Mets sold for two billion. I think the Royals sold for a little over a billion. Somewhere between the two is, you know, is the Baltimore experience. One thing that you didn't mention that I do think impacts it is we are now 15 years into the Nationals, right? They have eroded the fan base for the Orioles. They creep into the counties that both Baltimore and Washington share. So I do think there are some challenges. Having said that, I, I think in my experience in baseball, there was always one or two franchises when I was working there that we just said to ourselves, hey, look there, there's a dim light in, you know, like it was in Detroit when the Fetzer family owned it before they changed. And when Mr. Yawkey passed away in Boston, that franchise went sort of dim. And then they revitalized with new ownership, new money, new ideas. So there are certain challenges in the city. There are certain challenges to the surrounding marketplace that the Orioles don't have anymore. Having said that, there's a huge rich history with the Orioles franchise, and uh, I think there's a lot of great opportunity. I don't think they'll have trouble finding a buyer, but it's going to have to be somebody that knows the media business and the baseball sports entertainment business and maybe even some real estate and other things because there's going to be a new lease negotiated in the next two years or more. And so I think those three combinations – create plenty of opportunity, that they'll have a lot of bidders, a lot of interest. I think it will be determined who the Angelos family decides they want to sell to ultimately is the decision. Last question. What was your experience like working for the Orioles? Uh, it, I mean, there are no better fans. Honestly, I know everybody says this. We have the best fans. St. Louis says this. All this. There are no better fans and no better interest in that team, in that Baltimore community. Look, Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods, west, east, south, north. They all have their own sort of characteristics, but they have a relationship with a team that goes back to the point where they really thought they would see Brooks Robinson at the Giant all the time or things like that. They still believe that. So I think it's one of those places that can refer. Look, when they were dormant for 10 or 12 years missing the playoffs and then they came back starting in 2012 and made that run, they quickly jumped to almost two and a half million, you know, in terms of attendance. They're not going to get back to more than three because the Nationals are in town. But I do think that shows that with the proper opportunity, 
that marketplace, that location, Camden Yards, what it is. A lot of people come from New York, Boston, Philadelphia to go to a game there because of its, you know, what it feels like. And so I think that combination is why it will always be a, can be a flagship franchise. Unfortunately, I think the circumstances right now are really difficult for that to happen. Um, but my experience in Baltimore and the surrounding was, was one where there was a deep affection for the team. Marty, it is so great to get your insight on all this stuff. Uh, best of luck to you and, uh, your time is much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, Al. Thanks. Great to be with you. All right, love the insight we've gotten from our last two guests there, Sam Monson and Marty Conway, and love what we continue to see from the Capitals. Another win for them on Thursday night. The Caps get to 21-7-4, a 4-3 victory over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena, the first game of a back-to-back with the Devils. Caps now, by the way, 5-1-0 and in the first games of back-to-back sets this season, and the Caps now 11-0-4 in one-goal games. This season. That, that has been a thing with the Caps. They've won a lot of close games. Uh, there is an argument to be made that the Caps aren't quite as good as that sparkling 21-7-4 record would suggest. But whatever. The record is what matters. And the Caps have an outstanding record. It's been such a good job so far this year. So with the game on Thursday night, Caps actually had a bad first period. Uh, had just four shots on goal to the Devils' 11 per natural stature. Had just 10-5-on-5 five five shot attempts to the Devils 18, but the score was tied at one after one period. So it wasn't a great opening 20 minutes, but you know, it was even after the opening 20 minutes. The Caps, after a mostly even second period, dominated the third period, during which they per natural statric had 17 five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils 10, including six high danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Devils too. So the Caps ended the game strong on Thursday night and ended up coming out with the win. The other great thing about this performance by the Caps on Thursday night, Caps responded to each of the Devils' goals. The Caps scored a goal within two minutes after each of the Devils' three goals. That's not something, obviously, like you plan for. It's just kind of something that happens. But that was a great aspect of that game. Like Devils would score and then the Caps would strike right back. And it happened three different times. If Genny Kuznetsov was the high score for the Caps on Thursday night. Two even strength goals, including the game-winning goal. And it's been such an interesting season for Kuznetsov so far because he has not registered a bunch of goals. Like, the thing that he's most known for, he really hasn't done. These goals on Thursday night, amazingly, were Kuzi's first two goals at home this season. I mean, that game on Thursday night, that was game number 32 for the Capitals in this season. And those two goals that Kuzi scored, his first two goals scored at Capital One Arena on the season. Heck, the goals were just his fourth and fifth goals of the season. He's not been producing from a goal-scoring, you know, point-generating standpoint. He, you know, it's not like he's been terrible this year, but the, the the goals have not come. They did come on Thursday night, although you have to kind of look at the specifics of each because it's not like Kuzi was tearing it up in terms of how he scored these goals. So his first goal was an even-strength goal, 11:47 into the second period, gave the Caps a 3-2 lead. Kuzi scoring on a sharp angle shot from below the left circle with a ton of bodies in front of the Devils goaltender, Mackenzie Blackwood, off a shot by Alex Ovechkin, who got the primary assist. So, I mean, it ended up being a nice shot from Kuzi, right? Again, it was like one of those, you know, near zero angle shots from, like I said, below the left circle. A lot of bodies in front, a lot of traffic in front of the Devils goaltender, Blackwood. But, you know, there there was an element of luck there where he just kind of sent the shot in. And because Blackwood had all kinds of chaos in front of him, the puck ends up going through. Goal number two for Kuznetsov, that was a classic puck luck goal. Even strength goal, 12.06 into the third period for a 4-3 Caps lead. 
Uh, the defenseman for the Caps, Justin Schultz, from between the right circle and the boards, sent the puck toward the net. The puck went off Kuzi in the right circle and then off a Devils defenseman, Damon Severson, who was right in front of Blackwood. So that, that was, you know, classic hockey happening. Schultz just like sends the puck toward the net. The puck goes off Kuzi, off the defenseman Severson, and then gets past Mackenzie Blackwood for that capital goal. Kuznetsov, I mean, look, he didn't have to apologize for this, but it, it wasn't like he scored on two breakaways or, you know, two wicked shots from the slot where he deftly outmaneuvered multiple Devils players and route to getting off that shot. Like, no, these were kind of lucky goals, especially that goal number two. But if it gets Kuznetsov going from a goal-scoring standpoint, all the better. It was interesting. Peter LaViolette during his virtual post-game press conference talked about what Kuznetsov did lately, which is go to LaViolette and ask to be playing more in the later minutes of games. And, you know, a lot of guys want that, obviously, but Kuznetsov wants to be doing more, wants to be achieving more. And maybe what he did on Thursday night ends up getting him going here. Also scoring on Thursday night for the Capitals was, yes, the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, another good game for him. To me, he's been playing so well here these last few weeks. Second period, even strength goal, primary assist, on that aforementioned Kuznetsov goal, a team-high four shots on goal, a team-high time plus-minus rating of plus three, and three hits. Another very active game for Alex Ovechkin. His even-strength goal came 7-15 into the second period, tied the game at two as he scored on a one-timer from the left circle off a nice pass by Daniel Sprong from the right circle off a failed clear by the Devils. Sprong, by the way, has been producing two assists for him on Thursday night. He also finished with a plus-minus rating of plus three. When it came to the goaltending for the Caps on Thursday night, this was a negative. Uh, Vitek Vanacek was the Caps starting goaltender for just the third time in seven games. As we've been discussing, uh, it really now has become a timeshare between Vanacek and Ilya Samsonov. And, you know, you weren't quite sure, okay, what is the team going to look like? Who's going to be starting in net? Caps had not played since last Saturday night. Caps had had a nice little break here uh, over these last few days. Vanacek gets the nod for Thursday night, and he stops 21 of the 24 shots on goal that he faces. Now, Vanacek, per natural stat trick, did stop all four of the high-danger shots on goal that he faced, but he gave up a goal on a medium-danger shot and gave up two goals on low-danger shots. And the two goals that really bothered you, so the first goal, an unassisted Nicholas Merkley even-strength goal, just a buck 23 into the first period for a one nothing Devils lead. This was awful. Vanacek hesitated and then failed on an attempted pass, allowing for Merkley, who had skated past defenseman John Carlson, to get to the puck and put it past Vanacek while charging through the left circle. Just a total gimme by Vanacek in the caps in that spot. And then the other goal given up by Vanacek that bothered you, the Miles Wood even strength goal, 620 into the second period for a 2-1 Devils lead as Wood scored from a sharp angle from below the right circle. And somehow the puck got through Vanacek and the right post. You know, you got to be bunched in tight in a spot like that. Vanacek wasn't. He left too much of an opening and the puck somehow snuck through again between Vanacek and that right post. So two softies, two goals given up there by Vanacek that you really should never be giving up. The other goal by the Devils uh, was a power play goal for them. So I thought the goaltending left some things to be desired. And it was disappointing for Vanacek because his last outing had been really good. Last Friday night, that 2-1 win over the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena. Vanacek in that game was great. He stopped 32 of the 33 shots on goal that he faced. Nowhere near as good, I thought, on Thursday night. Couple of other positives, though, for the Caps in this win over the Devils. So Garnett Hathaway has been very good for the Caps this year. Eight hits 
on Thursday night. The Caps actually out hit the Devils 26-9. So the Caps brought it from a physicality standpoint against New Jersey. But Garnett Hathaway, as we speak on this Friday, tied for 10th in the NHL with 100 hits this season. And the old man continued to get the job done. Defenseman Zdeno Chara in his age 43 season, leading the Caps with six block shots on Thursday night. I mean, that's something Chara has done well for years. But how about that? The old man not being afraid of getting hit by that rubber, even when it's going, you know, 80, 90, 100 miles per hour, whenever some of those shots end up going. Zdeno Chara, six block shots on Thursday night. Did commit a first period slashing penalty, but Chara has been a consistent player for the Caps this season in terms of like he's playing every game. He's playing a lot every game and he's largely playing well. I mean, I don't want to overstate things, but again, age 43 season, the guy's blocking six shots in a Thursday night win over the New Jersey Devils. Like raise your hand if you expected that from Zdeno Chara when the Caps signed him in late December. So here we are, Caps again, 21-7-4, 46 points, second in the East Division, uh, two points behind the New York Islanders, who won at the Boston Bruins 4-3 in overtime on Thursday night, and two points ahead of the Pittsburgh Penguins, who shut out the Buffalo Sabres 4 nothing on Thursday night. So that upper portion of the East Division remains bunched in tight. Caps host the Devils again Friday night at 7, then host the New York Rangers Sunday at noon. And we now arrive at the Wizards, for whom Thursday was NBA trade deadline day. What were the Wizards going to do? We talked about that at length on Thursday's podcast with Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington. And sure enough, the Wizards did make a move, a three-way trade with the Chicago Bulls and Boston Celtics. The Wizards sending Troy Brown Jr. to the Bulls, Mo Wagner to the Celtics, and acquiring 6'11", Daniel Gafford, and Chandler Hutchison from the Bulls. Before we get to those two guys, let's put a capper on the tenures for Troy Brown Jr. and Mo Wagner with the Wizards. Troy Brown Jr. ended up being a complete flop of a pick for the Wiz. Now, maybe he ends up figuring it out elsewhere, and that's going to be really intriguing to follow because Scott Brooks very clearly wanted nothing to do with playing Troy Brown as time went on. Troy Brown Jr. had been buried by Scott Brooks over these last few seasons, including having been a DNPCD for each of the Wizards' previous four games until that last game, that hideous loss at the New York Knicks on Tuesday night. Troy Brown Jr. was taken by the Wizards with the number 15 overall pick in the 2018 NBA draft. He was the last of the Wizards' first-round picks by Ernie Grunfeld. That was the last gift from Ernie, who, of course, was so bad when it came to his draft choices. And it just didn't happen here. Now, maybe all of that's on Brown and not on Brooks. You know, we'll see. But clearly, Scott Brooks, when it came to playing Troy Brown, uh, didn't like doing that. He didn't play Troy Brown like ever, it felt like. And Mo Wagner found himself in a similar situation. Mo Wagner did play on Tuesday night but he played off having been a DNPCD for the previous five games. And he had started the previous 13 games prior to that. But prior to starting those 13 consecutive games, he'd been a DNPCD a bunch before that. So Wagner and Brown, two guys who Brooks had really no desire to continue to play, those guys end up being dealt elsewhere. It's a shame with Brown, with him having been a first-round pick. It also, though, to me, is a shame with Wagner. So the Wizards got Wagner as part of the three-way trade that resulted in Anthony Davis going from the New Orleans Pelicans to the Los Angeles Lakers 
in the summer of 2019. Remember, the Wizards got involved in that Pelicans-Lakers trade and ended up doing, I thought, a shrewd thing. Sent a little more than a million dollars to the Pelicans and got back three players and a pick from the Lakers. Mo Wagner, Isak Bonga, and Jamario Jones and a second-round pick in the 2022 NBA draft. And if you remember Wagner at Michigan, he was a good three-point shooting big man. The Wolverines, remember, lost to Villanova in the national championship game for the 2017-2018 season. Wagner in the Wolverines win over Loyola of Illinois in that 2018 Final Four, a monster. Three of seven on threes, 24 points, 15 rebounds, including six offensive boards and three steals in just 26 minutes. So I was always intrigued by Wagner, but again, fell out of favor with Scott Brooks. So the Wizards make this trade. They get back, like I said, Gafford and Hutchison. Hutchison, like Brown, has been a bust. Hutchison was taken by the Bulls with the number 22 overall pick in the 2018 draft out of Boise State, has appeared in just 79 games over three seasons, has not played in a game since February 5th due to personal reasons. So who knows what's going on with Chandler Hutchison, but it's basically bust for bust in sending Troy Brown away and getting back Hutchison. The really intriguing guy who the Wizards got back in this three-way trade on Thursday is Daniel Gafford. So Gafford was taken by the Bulls in the second round of the 2019 draft out of Arkansas. He's a young big with a high defensive ceiling. This, is, in a lot of ways, is exactly what the Wizards need, especially with Thomas Bryant likely out for the rest of the season with that partial ACL tear. So Daniel Gafford at the 2019 NBA Combine had measurements of being 6'10 with a 7'2 wingspan and a 36.5-inch vertical leap uh, Gafford, over 74 games with the Bulls, averaged 3.3 blocks per 36 minutes. And at the time of the trade on Thursday, was tied for second in the NBA in box out per 36 minutes at 5.9. So this is a guy who can do a lot of the things that the Wizards haven't done very well. And to get an athletic big man here with a 7-2 wingspan, that's the kind of thing the Wizards need to maybe, hopefully, actually display some defensive improvement as the season goes on. Now, I think there's a bigger picture to be looking at, and that is the Wizards did not make any kind of like a win-now move on Thursday. You know, the the Wizards, I think, smartly aren't trying to go all in to try to get the eight spot in this lowly Eastern Conference this season, especially at now being 15 and 28 off that loss at the Knicks on Thursday night. More on that in a moment. But that was one of the things we talked about with Chase on the podcast on Thursday. What would the Wizards do, not only from like a roster standpoint, but what would the Wizards do from a standpoint of what that would communicate to us about what the Wizards see with the rest of this season? And what I think the Wizards see with the rest of this season is figure it out with what you got. Otherwise, there could be some significant change, i.e. Scott Brooks getting fired. And I still don't think that it's a given that Scott Brooks makes it through the rest of this season. I, I think we've essentially been on Scott Brooks' watch throughout this season, starting with that 3-12 and start. Now, things obviously got better after that, but they've gotten uh, a whole lot worse since then. And, you know, with Bradley Beal, with Russell Westbrook, with Davies Bertans, you know, like you're kind of, these are guys, these are big money guys, and you're kind of stuck with them right now. I mean, Beal, of course, you could trade if you want to, but they don't want to. But I don't see Westbrook as being someone who you can just easily ship out of town if you want to. And Bertans has been a disaster so far this season with his lackluster three-point shooting, at least by his standards, and with all the injuries that the guy has had to deal with. Remember, Bertans now, he's in the midst of having missed each of the Wizards' last three games due to a right calf strain. So you try to get another young guy in Gafford who can maybe grow with you. You know, maybe somehow this kid Hutchison 
figures it out and you get rid of two people and again Brown and Wagner who Scott Brooks just was not interested in playing and the Wizards better be proven right on that because it's going to be a killer if Troy Brown blossoms elsewhere and I would say the same thing for Mo Wagner. I mean, a guy like Wagner, a big who can shoot threes, or at least ha- has displayed a penchant for shooting threes well, that's something you just like to give away unless you feel, really feel confident that that's the right thing to do. So, okay, Wizards make this trade on Thursday. Then comes the game on Thursday night, what ends up being a 106-102 loss at the New York Knicks. The Wizards falling to 15-28, and 13 games below 500, a 10th loss in 12 games for the Wizards. And how about what we saw in this game? A gack job by the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. The Wizards blowing a 17-point third-quarter lead. So remember, right, the Wizards had that game at the Knicks on Tuesday night. It was a complete and total debacle. The Wizards' defense atrocious in what ended up being a 131-113 loss at the Knicks. Defense was better, much better, on Thursday night at least over the first three quarters. The Wizards actually played excellent defense for three quarters. Held the Knicks over the first three quarters to just 67 points on just 30.1% shooting, including three of 22 on threes. Now, yes, some of that is the Knicks missing some open shots, but also give the Wizards credit. They were not the embarrassment defensively that they had been at the Knicks on Tuesday night. So first three quarters, very good defense. Last quarter, Not so much. The Knicks in the fourth quarter scored 39 points on 12 of 20 shooting, including four of six on threes. The Wizards in the fourth quarter, no answer for Alec Burks, who scored 15 points. The Wizards, they end up blowing this game, which should have been a win, ends up being yet another loss. Wizards had a hard time playing defense without fouling. The Wizards uh, ended up allowing the Knicks to shoot 42 free throws in the game. Uh, Wizards did have 33 themselves, but only went 20 of 33 on their free throws. Knicks went 31 of 42 on their free throws. So the inability to play defense without fouling was a major issue for the Wizards on Thursday night. And the two big guns for the Wizards were very disappointing, especially Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal for a third consecutive game was not good, certainly by his standards on Thursday night. Beal went just 8 of 23 shooting, including 2 of 7 on threes. Bradley Beal now is shooting just 33.2% on threes this season. And he committed six turnovers. I mean, that's not what your max contract franchise guy is supposed to be giving you. 8 of 23 shooting, including 2 of 7 on threes and six turnovers. He finished with 26 points, nine assists, and four rebounds. But Beal is in a slump here. You know, that loss at the Knicks on Tuesday night, Beal in that game, just six to 15 shooting, five turnovers. Beal in the Wizards' previous game, that 113-106 loss at the Brooklyn Nets on Sunday night, had one of his worst games of the season, was defended well by the Virginia product, Joe Harris. Uh, Beal in that game, just one of three on threes, just five of 12 on twos, just 17 points and two rebounds and six turnovers. Did have five assists, but the turnovers continue to be a real problem for Beal. The turnovers and the three-point shooting. Like I said, 33.2% on threes for Beal this season, and way too many turnovers for Beal this season, especially lately. You're now looking at, for Bradley Beal over his last three games, 17 turnovers. That's way too many, especially for a guy who isn't even a point guard. And speaking of point guards, Russell Westbrook on Thursday night, a vintage Russell Westbrook game. So on the one hand, some jaw-dropping numbers, 18 rebounds for Russell Westbrook, nine assists, four block shots, two steals. You like all that. What you don't like is the inefficiency. 
Russell Westbrook went 3 of 15 from the field, including 0 of 5 on threes. Russell Westbrook went just 7 of 12 on free throws, continuing to be brutal on free throws this season. He finished with just 13 points, and he committed 8 turnovers. So Beal and Westbrook on Thursday night combined for 14 turnovers. Not good. Not the way it's supposed to be. Three of Westbrook's turnovers came in that fourth quarter in which the Wizards were outscored 39-24. And how about this nugget regarding Westbrook from Thursday night? He was especially bad in the second half. Russell Westbrook, in fact, in the second half on Thursday night, 0 of 8 shooting and six fouls. Yeah, he ended up fouling out. Russell Westbrook, believe it or not, became the first player per ESPN over the last 25 seasons to go 0 of 8 or worse from the field and have six personal fouls in any half. That's something. That That's quite an achievement for old Russie on Thursday night with what he did in this loss at the Knicks. But look, it's hard enough for the Wizards to win when Beal and Westbrook are playing well. When they're off like they were on Thursday night, like Beal has been over the last three games, you basically have no chance. It's, it's a minor miracle, in fact, that the Wizards ended up losing by just four. You know, that the Wizards were up by 17 in that third quarter, because given the performances by Beal and Westbrook, uh, Wizards really shouldn't have been in that position, but they were. And the defense over the first three quarters was the reason. Uh, Wizards did get some good minutes from Garrison Matthews on Thursday night. You know, Garrison Matthews has continued to start. And for the most part, he hasn't done much offensively, but he was good on Thursday night. Three of four on three, 16 points, three assists versus no turnovers and two steals. Rui Hachimura had a mixed game, just two of six on threes, just one of four on free throws, but also seven of 10 on twos. He finished with 21 points, nine rebounds, and a team best plus minus rating of plus 10. But I mentioned the Wizards having a hard time playing defense without fouling. Alex Len on Thursday night starts, but plays for just 22 minutes, 38 seconds, five fouls. Denny Avdia comes off the bench on Thursday night again. No points on 0 of 4 shooting, four fouls in just 10 minutes, 55 seconds as a reserve. Bottom line, it's another loss for a Wizards season that continues to sink and go down the tubes. Wizards at 15 and 28 have the third worst record in the Eastern Conference. Just a half game, by the way, ahead of the Orlando Magic. So you're looking at the Wizards potentially falling to next to last in the East. Wiz are five and a half games behind the Boston Celtics for eighth in the East. To whatever extent you're still paying attention to that. Uh, Wizards next are home to the Detroit Pistons Saturday night at eight. The damn Washington Wizards. There will come a day when we can stop using that drop when we talk Wizards. That day, sadly, has not yet arrived. Meantime, the Washington Nationals, inside of a week are we until opening day. One week from today, Friday, April 2nd, we will be talking about that which went down on Thursday night, April 1st. Opening night for the Nationals, Nats Mets at Nationals Park, Max Scherzer versus Jacob deGrom. Weather permitting, I guess you have to say, but we're getting closer, very close. I said close, Brucey. It means you're close. Yes, we are close, Bruce Allen, to the start of the baseball season. Anyway, some scary news on Thursday evening. Nats had a 7-3 Grapefruit League loss to the Miami Marlins, and Juan Soto left the game early, uh, left the game due to a right calf cramp. He felt as or after he worked actually an 11-pitch one-out walk on Sixto Sanchez in the top of the first inning. That, that was some kind of plate appearance by Soto, but he leaves the game do this right calf cramp. It doesn't appear to be anything serious, but, you know, it's Juan Soto, and, like, why take any kind of a chance in a meaningless game against the Marlins in late March? But here is the bigger thing with Juan Soto here right now. So he's had a terrible exhibition season. 
Juan Soto, over 38 plate appearances this exhibition season, has a batting average of 182, an on-base percentage of 289, and a slugging percentage of 182. Yes, his batting average and his slugging percentage are the same, 182. That's not good. That's not the way that's supposed to work. Now, Davey Martinez on Wednesday did open up a bit about why Soto has had such a bad Grapefruit League season. Davey, in a Zoom press conference, quote, the biggest thing with him in spring training is he really wants to establish going the other way a lot, staying on the ball as long as he can, seeing the ball deep. Right now, he's seeing the ball deep, real deep. It's just a matter of him getting his timing down. And quote, I I think it's ridiculous to suggest that, oh my God, you know, Juan Soto's in trouble. Like, let's see what happens once the regular season starts. It is worth pointing out, there are great hitters who have bad seasons, or at the very least, like bad extended stretches. Uh, Kristen Yelich, who had killed it for the Milwaukee Brewers for multiple seasons, had a really bad 2020. But of course, the 2020 season was a 60-game season. So if that ends up being a normal 162-game season, I think there's a really good chance Kristen Yelich ends up finding himself as that season goes on. But the point is, there are occasions when really good hitters struggle for prolonged periods of time. But here's the thing about Soto that is so remarkable and such a credit to him. He's been at the major league level now for three seasons, right? He's killed it, right? He's never really had a sustained stretch of struggling. Like, he's never really had a prolonged slump. And even great hitters go through slumps. The Nats over the years, they've obviously had some very good batters, but, you know, like those guys have been prone to slumps. Ryan Zimmerman, as good as he's been, has been someone who can slump big time. Uh, Bryce Harper, as good as he could be, had some nasty slumps over his time. Soto hasn't had that. Like he's had this impeccable run, this like flawless run almost to begin his career. So, you know, I guess you have to say like at some point he's going to get humbled, we think. But it has been three seasons, and he hasn't dealt with that just yet. The, the, the track record really is something else with him. So I'll believe it when I see it in terms of Juan Soto having a bad 2021. But it is worth pointing out, he has had a really bad exhibition season so far, and he does lead that game on Thursday evening due to a right calf cramp. Speaking of injuries to Nationals position players, so Starling Castro, per Davey, in his pregame Zoom presser on Thursday, dealing with a very mild hamstring strain. You may recall Tuesday afternoon, that 5-0 exhibition tie with the St. Louis Cardinals, the game in which Starlin Castro and not Carter Keboom was the Nats starting third base. And we talked about that a lot on Wednesday's podcast. But Castro starts that game at third base and ends up leaving the game due to that hamstring situation. But the good news would be, as Davey put it, it is a very mild hamstring strain. We know those things, though, can linger. Nats do need Starlin Castro to be healthy this season. Remember, in 2020, he played in just 16 games due to suffering a broken right wrist. Also on Thursday evening, and I'm sorry to share with you some more bad news here, but this Nationals bullpen, which everyone was talking up as being so deep and maybe being the best Nats bullpen in years, uh, it continues to have an awful exhibition season. How much this means, I have no idea, but we're not just going to ignore this year. Daniel Hudson got charged with three runs in two-thirds of an inning on Thursday evening. One of those runs thanks to Brad Hand, who relieved Hudson and gave up a two-run homer. The results for Hudson and Hand this Grapefruit League season have been abysmal. There's no other way to put it, okay? Daniel Hudson now, in this exhibition season, I mean, take a listen to these numbers. Five games, four and two-thirds innings, seven runs, 
on six hits and a walk. He's given up three runs. He's got an ERA of 1350. Brad Hand this exhibition season, seven games, five and two thirds innings, 10 runs, nine earned on 12 hits and five walks. He's given up two homers. He's got an ERA of 14.29. Now, Brad Hand has a recent track record that's quite good. It's one of the reasons why I really like the Nats signing Hand this past offseason. So I'm not as worried about Hand as I am about Hudson, although, I mean, Hand really has been terrible so far this exhibition season. But how about old Daniel Hudson now, right? Of course, 2019 hero, postseason hero. Daniel Hudson last season was bad, really bad. A 6-10 ERA over 20 and two-thirds innings, gave up six homers, had a walk rate of 4.8 walks per nine innings. Now, he did have a high strikeout rate, 12.2 strikeouts per nine innings, but Hudson, albeit in just 20 and two-thirds innings, was not good in 2020. He's going into his age 34 season, and he continues to struggle big time this exhibition season. Let us just hope this is just some veterans trying to feel themselves out, work through some things, experiment with some things, work on some things. But if you take this as any kind of a sign of what's to come, it's going to be another ugly season here for this Nationals bullpen. We'll see. And and again, it's not just about some of these guys struggling, right? It's about the lack of depth here that's emerged over the last few weeks. Will Harris, blood clot in his right arm. Tanner Rainey dealing with a muscle strain near his right collarbone. Jeremy Jeffress mysteriously cut just a few weeks after being signed. Hudson has struggled. Hand has struggled. It's not a pretty picture right now with this Nationals bullpen if we're being honest about things. Something I loved from that spring training on Thursday was the following. Davey Martinez, in his pregame Zoom press conference, revealed that he is open to using openers in 2021. I cannot tell you how happy I was to hear this, all right? So an opener, as many of you know, is a reliever who starts a game, pitches for like an inning or so, then gets pulled, and then the quote-unquote starter comes in, or at the very least, like a long reliever comes in, i.e. the second guy who comes in is coming in with the idea of him pitching at the very least, like three to five innings. Here was Davey Martinez on Thursday on being open to the opener in 2021. Quote, the biggest thing for me right now is the fact that being last year, being a shortened season, my concerns are building up so many innings with these guys early on. So this is a possibility that we're looking at, maybe giving them an extra day, maybe going bullpen day, things of that nature. Maybe having somebody else spot start and then having to use the bullpen. So we're looking at all these different options. I want to be prepared for anything because you never know. End quote. Bravo. Bravo, Davey. I love that. And I hope the Nats are open to the opener in 2021. I believe the Nats should have been open to the opener for years now. So he raises one of the key things going into this upcoming baseball season, the lack of innings thrown by pitchers in 2020 due to it having been a shortened season. Nobody in the majors in 2020 threw more than 85 innings. The major league leader in innings pitched last season was Lance Lynn at 84. It's really an unexplored frontier that we're going into here in 2021. What's going to happen with all these arms off all of them having thrown so few innings, relatively speaking, in 2020 versus what had been done in years past? Like, what's going to happen with guys who only threw, say, 60 innings in 2020 
potentially having to throw 200 innings in 2021. Like, are those guys going to be just fine doing that? Are those guys' arms going to fall off? Like, are we going to have a bunch of pitcher injuries in 2021 because arms and bodies are being pushed in a manner in which those arms and bodies have not been pushed in a couple of seasons? Now, maybe a lot of guys end up being just fine. I mean, what's going to end up happening, truthfully, is some guys will be just fine, but some guys probably won't be. And how do you differentiate between those who are going to be just fine doing that and those who maybe won't be? And so, yes, teams are going to have to be innovative with how they deploy pitchers. Teams are probably going to need a lot of pitchers to make it through the 2021 season, probably more than normal. This is one of my concerns with the Nats because they do lack rotation depth. And yes, something like the opener strategy should be on the table for every ball club. So the opener strategy was innovated by the 2018 Tampa Bay Rays, who inexplicably went 90 and 72, despite having traded away a number of key players. The Rays debuted the opener strategy on May 19th, 2018, with Sergio Romo, who struck out Zach Cozart, Mike Trout, and Justin Upton in a perfect inning and a 5-3 win at the Los Angeles Angels. The Rays ended up having a 350 team ERA the rest of that season. After being mocked and ridiculed by the establishment, other teams eventually followed with this opener strategy, including the Oakland A's and the Milwaukee Brewers in the postseason. The idea with the opener really is twofold. Number one, the highest scoring inning historically is the first inning. And so especially now with most teams batting their best hitters near the tops of lineups, whatever you can do to escape that first inning unscathed, you should do. Number two, relief pitching historically is better than starting pitching. Why? Because relievers come in and go all out. A starter has to pace himself with the idea of going six or seven innings. A reliever can come in, throw as hard as possible, and then leave. The Nets have only used the opener strategy once. It happened a couple of years ago, July 26, 2019, a 9-3 loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park. Matt Grace was used as the opener. Now, you might say, well, Goldie, how good is this opener strategy? Nats got ripped by the Dodgers the only time the Nats used that strategy. Au contraire. So first of all, a lot of this was circumstantial for the Nats in using this opener strategy. Grace was a lefty. The Dodgers had a number of good batters who were lefties. You know, think Cody Bellinger, Max Muncy, Corey Seager, Jack Peterson. Also, the guy who would have been the Nats starting pitcher for that game, Joe Ross, was a righty who had been slaughtered by lefty batters in recent years, including in 2019. Grace as an opener worked, worked to perfection in that game, July 26, 2019. Grace tossed two perfect innings with three strikeouts, and all three strikeouts were of lefty batters, Alex Verdugo, Max Muncy, and Corey Seager. The strategy from the standpoint of how did the opener do worked to perfection. Again, two perfect innings for Grace in that game. The problem ended up being Ross. Ross came in and got shredded. Seven runs, six earned in four and two-thirds innings on a homer, three doubles, five singles, two walks, one of which was intentional, and a wild pitch. But the opener strategy actually worked The guy relieving the opener, the quote-unquote starter, was the person who ended up not working out. But that has been the only time that the Nats have made usage of this opener strategy. Now, of course, the Nationals are a team that has been predicated on its starting pitching. The Nats, for the most part, have had a very good rotation for years. Uh, Last season, the starting pitching was not good overall. But of course, prior to that, for years, the Nats had been so good with their rotation. So the Nats have not really profiled as a team that has needed to make usage of the opener strategy. But 
beyond Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, you have had questions. And this season will be no exception. We hope John Lester and Joe Ross do well as the numbers four and five starters, but we do not know. And so, especially if you're concerned about guys having to ramp up their innings counts off the shortened season in 2020, heck yeah, be open to the opener. Good job, Davey Martinez, saying that. I am proud of Davey Martinez. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, we are proud of the boys, Davey. Thank you very much. One more Nats item, and then we'll get to the Orioles and then that Georgetown news from Thursday. So Gio Gonzalez announced his retirement via Instagram on Thursday. And this is notable for multiple reasons beyond just the obvious one. So it turns out that Gio's last professional appearance is going to end up being that wretched outing that he had this past Saturday evening against the Nats. A 7-4 Nats exhibition win over the Miami Marlins. Gio Gonzalez came into the game as a reliever for the Marlins, got charged with seven runs, recorded just one out, gave up eight hits, two doubles and six singles, two walks, and a wild pitch. We talked about that earlier uh, this week on the podcast. That ends up being Gio's final appearance as a professional pitcher. He announces his retirement via Instagram on Thursday. So the Nats, of course, had Gio for years, acquired Gio in a trade with the Oakland A's December 23rd, 2011. It was a deal that included sending A.J. Cole, Tommy Malone, Derek Norris, and Brad Peacock to the A's. It was one of about a million trades that the Nats and A's made trade, that the Nats and A's made during that time period. Mike Rizzo and Billy Bean made so many trades in, in a period of time there going back about, you know, 10 years ago for like a couple of years. It was like one trade after another between the Nats and the A's. So with Gio, of course, you can't talk about him without talking about his two hideous NLDS Game 5 performances, all right? Let's just get the bad out of the way, okay? Two of the most gut-wrenching Nationals losses ever. Heck, probably the two most gut-wrenching Nationals losses ever happened with Gio as a starting pitcher. The 2012 NLDS Game 5 9-7 loss to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park. Gio started for the Nats in that game three runs in five innings on five hits and four walks versus five strikeouts. The 2017 NLDS Game 5, 9-8 loss to the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park, the game that cemented Dusty Baker not being brought back as Nats manager. Gio in that game as the starter, three runs in three innings on three hits and four walks versus five strikeouts. I remember screaming to the heavens on the morning of that game, the Nats should not be starting Geo. Start anyone but Geo. I advocated for a bullpen approach to that game. I said, don't start Geo. He's not good in these spots. He's not someone who deals with stress well. Don't do it. Don't go with Geo. It may well have been the biggest mistake that Dusty made that postseason. That's saying a lot. And Geo ended up struggling big time. Geo overall in the postseason was not good for the Nats. 26 into third postseason innings. He gave up 14 earned runs on 20 hits and 19 walks versus 26 strikeouts. I mean, Gio walked the ballpark like few others in postseason play. But with that bad, did come a lot of good. And I do want to highlight that here because we can mock Gio, poke fun at Gio, but we should reference that the guy overall was a very good regular season pitcher for the Nats. And that matters, right? You can't struggle in the postseason without making the postseason. Gio helped the Nats make the postseason multiple times. Six plus seasons for Gio with the Nats. 2012 until he got traded to the Milwaukee Brewers August 31st, 2018. Gio from 2012 through 2017 made at least 27 starts each season, made at least 31 starts 
in five of those six seasons. So he was durable. Give him credit for that and don't ever discount the importance of that, right? In this day and age of so many pitcher injuries, Gio stayed healthy. You could count on Gio. Gio posted start in and start out. Gio overall was a very good regular season pitcher. 213 regular season starts for the Nats. He had an ERA of 362. He had an ERA plus of 112. ERA plus is simply ERA adjusted for your home ballpark in your league. 100 is average. Gio had an ERA plus of 112. So he was 12% better than the league average. He was a good regular season starting pitcher. And if you look at Gio Gonzalez with the Nats through the prism of war, we'll use the baseball reference version. Gio over six plus regular seasons accumulated 21.0 war, including 6.5 war in 2017. One of the great, again, regular seasons for the Nats that you'll ever have in terms of uh, the starting pitching. The Nats in 2017, incredibly, had three of the top five pitchers in the majors in war per baseball uh, baseball reference. Max Scherzer, Gio Gonzalez, and Steven Strasburg. I I don't know if you'll ever see something like that again. That that was incredible. When the Nats in 17, again, had three of the top five pitchers in baseball in war per baseball reference. So let's honor that. Let's remark on that. Gio Gonzalez was a good regular season pitcher for the Nats. He was a quirky guy. He wore his emotions on his sleeve. He would react uh, I thought at times inappropriately to bad things that would happen behind him on the field, i.e. like someone would commit an error and Gio would kind of pitch a fit on the mound. But he was known as a good guy. It's not like his teammates didn't like Gio. Uh, Mark Zuckerman on the most recent installment of the Nats Chat podcast also told of how Gio during his post-game sessions with reporters would always make it a point to highlight something one of his teammates did in that game. Even if Gio had just thrown a very good game he would begin his session with reporters by remarking on, hey, boy, didn't that guy make a great catch? Or, man, didn't that guy have a big hit in the bottom of the sixth inning? That kind of a thing. Like, he he always didn't want the attention solely on him. He wanted to credit his teammates. So I give Gio credit for something like that. I, I don't think Gio was a bad guy or anything like that. He had some bad moments in some big spots, no doubt. But he also helped the Nats get to those big spots, and we shouldn't overlook that. So a salute to Gio Gonzalez as he embarks on his retirement. All right, so for the Orioles on Thursday evening, a 10-9 exhibition win over the Pittsburgh Pirates. First of all, Austin Hayes, the outfielder, played out of his mind. Three-run homer, a triple, a double, and two assists throughout two runners at the plate. If that's a sign of what Austin Hayes is going to provide in 2021, That's outstanding. O's took Austin Hayes in the third round of the 2016 draft. He's going into his age 25 season. Has not been great so far offensively at the major league level, but he has totaled plus four defensive runs saved in 274 major league innings in the outfield. But what a performance by Hayes on Thursday evening. Uh, Not doing as well in this game on Thursday evening was Keegan Aiken. He was the Orioles starting pitcher. He gave up six runs in two and a third innings on eight hits, two doubles and six singles and two walks versus three strikeouts. Keegan Aiken is a guy who the O's took in the second round of the 2016 draft, going into his age 26 season, and he's had kind of a mixed run of things here in terms of his exhibition season. Now, it does continue to appear it's going to be John Means, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken as three guys for sure in the Orioles rotation, and there's now another name we're going to add to that. We'll get to that momentarily, but, you know, nothing has been like decreed with certainty from the manager, Brandon Hyde, so, you know, guys still, in theory, have to be earning some spots, 
I would think Aiken is still safe, but that was not a good performance on Thursday evening. Now, a guy who we do know is safe is Matt Harvey. The Orioles on Thursday selected Harvey's contract to the 40-man roster. So Matt Harvey has made the Orioles season opening rotation. The O signed Harvey to a minor league deal last month. He's going into his age 32 season. He has become a journeyman over these last few years. Matt Harvey, since the start of the 2018 season, has pitched for the New York Mets, the Cincinnati Reds, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Kansas City Royals, and now we're about to add to that list the Orioles. Uh, Harvey, over the last five years, 2016 through 2020, an ERA of 582 over 411 and two-thirds innings, a far cry from his peak with the Mets in 2012, 2013, and 2015. But good job, Matt Harvey. Look, he's had a rough go of it these last few years. It's not just the bad performance we just outlined. It's also the health issues. Uh, you know, Harvey famously underwent Tommy John surgery in October 2013. But the health problem that really has doomed him is the thoracic outlet syndrome, the TOS. Harvey in July 2016 underwent surgery to address the thoracic outlet syndrome. And he hasn't been the same since. You know, like I said, the last five years for Harvey, he's just been abysmal. Like there's no other way to put it. So if he is kind of rediscovering himself and becoming, you know, more of a pitcher as opposed to a thrower, because he doesn't have the velocity he had in those peak years with the Mets in 12, 13, and 15, then more power to him. I mean, it's not like he's ancient. Like I said, he's only going into his age 32 season. Like it's not like he's, you know, 40 or something like that. So here you are with the Orioles, right? And we've talked about this. They gave minor league contracts to three veterans who've struggled big time in recent years, Harvey, Felix Hernandez, and Wade LeBlanc. King Felix is dealing with an injury. There was news with LeBlanc on Thursday. We'll get to that in a moment. But Harvey ends up making the team out of spring training. Like, we'll see how long he stays in the rotation for. But good job. Like, I'm rooting for the guy. I hope that he does end up doing well. And, of course, the plan should be Matt Harvey is fixed and then Matt Harvey is flipped. Okay? I mean, it's as simple as that. Orioles are a rebuilding, tanking team. Matt Harvey is in no way going to be a part of the next Orioles batch of teams that are good, right? Barring the unforeseen. I mean, look, I guess anything's possible, but I don't think if you're Mike Elias, you have designs on Matt Harvey being here for the long haul. So what you hope with Matt Harvey is he does at least a halfway decent job. And then come the trade deadline, you can trade him to a contending team and get back to prospect or prospects. Like that's the reason you sign a Matt Harvey. Otherwise you're wasting your time giving out these minor league deals to guys like Harvey Hernandez and LeBlanc. And I'm sure the Orioles are looking at it that way. They did this with Tommy Malone last year. Signed him to a minor league deal. He was pretty good for the O's. And then they traded him to the Atlanta Braves. Now, I mentioned Wade LeBlanc. Wade LeBlanc is no longer with the Orioles. Uh, the Orioles announcing on Thursday that LeBlanc had requested and been granted his release to become a free agent. I guess it's possible he gets re-signed by the O's, but he wants to see uh, what's out there. So LeBlanc, again, signed to a minor league deal. You know, always trying to just see if there's anything uh, with LeBlanc that they could maybe uh, mine for the upcoming season. He's going into his age 36 season. Hadn't really pitched much in exhibition games. Did pitch for the O's last year and uh, ended up having an 8.06 ERA over six starts. And we'll wrap up this loaded Friday installment of the Al Goldie podcast by talking about Georgetown basketball. So how about what the Hoyas announced on Thursday? Kudis Wahab has entered the NCAA transfer portal. Kudis Wahab, a 6'11 sophomore from Nigeria, very promising big man, very productive big man for the Hoyas in their now concluded 2020-21 season. And he's gone so. He's going to be transferring, or at least he's entered 
into the transfer portal. Uh, this comes as by Patrick Ewing having been uh, very complimentary publicly of Wahab. You know, Patrick has talked up Wahab, especially in recent weeks. Wahab, this past season for Georgetown, 26 games, had the following per-game averages, 12.7 points on 59.1% shooting, 8.2 rebounds, 1.6 blocks. I mean, you talk about that Hoyas miracle run to win the Big East tournament. Wahab was a big part of that. That 73-48 demolition of Creighton in the Big East tournament championship game. Wahab, 11 points on 5 of 6 shooting, 12 rebounds in 32 minutes as a starter. The shredding of Marquette, 68-49 in the first round of the Big East tournament. Wahab, 19 points on 6 of 8 shooting, 7 rebounds in just 25 minutes as a starter. You go back to even Georgetown's final game of the season, that ugly blowout loss to Colorado in the first round of the NCAA tournament this past Saturday afternoon. The only Hoya, I I said this on Monday's podcast, the only Hoya who you could truly say had a good game in terms of producing throughout the game was Wahab. 20 points on 7-12 shooting and 12 rebounds, including four offensive boards in just 24 minutes as a starter. Now, was he a perfect player? Of course not. He was not good on free throws, just 6-9 on free throws in that loss to Colorado. He went just 1-7 on free throws in that route of Creighton in the Big East Tournament Championship game. Uh, he could have some issues with turnovers at times. Like, no, he wasn't a polished product, but the guy was promising. And and again, Patrick was talking up Wahab. It's not, it's not like this was a guy who was like in Patrick Ewing's doghouse, at least not publicly, and at least not in terms of playing time. Like, Wahab was out there a lot, and he was among the better Georgetown players this past season. So we just don't know exactly what the deal is here. Now, I've been told that it had been considered likely that Wahab was going to be transferring earlier in the season. And there were people who thought that maybe that had changed with how well Wahab's season ended up becoming. But obviously, that did not change. So I don't know if there was a personality conflict between Kudis and Patrick. I don't know if there are some other circumstances here we're not aware of. I don't know. Uh, the statement that Patrick Ewing and the Hoyas put out, it did not include much on the subject. It did not include anything close to like an expansive uh, comment from Patrick on the topic. It was a very, you know, sort, sort of a token quote that was put in there by Patrick Ewing. But there's no doubt this is a blow to Georgetown. Uh, honestly, uh, I think my Maryland Terrapin should be in on Kudus Wahab with their need for size and what this guy can provide. I, I would think there's going to be a juicy transfer market for Kudus Wahab. And 100%, I think Maryland should be in on Kudus Wahab. But here's kind of the bigger picture here for the Hoyas. And, you know, I talked up a lot of optimism with them on Monday's podcast. And I still stand by that. I mean, that, that run to win the Big East tournament was sensational. And Georgetown still has a very good recruiting class coming in for this next season. But it's undeniable, man. A ton of guys have transferred from Georgetown since the start of last season. The list now is Kudis Wahab, assuming he actually ends up transferring, Mac McClung, James Akinjo, who had been Georgetown's starting point guard and was a 2018-2019 Big East Freshman of the Year, Josh LeBlanc, Myron Gardner, and Galen Alexander. Now, look, Gardner and Alexander weren't like, you know, big-time players for Georgetown, but LeBlanc was a key reserve. Akinjo, like I said, was their starting point guard and was the Big East Freshman of the Year for the 18-19 season. McClung was a high-profile, flashy scorer, and Wahab was a productive big man in Georgetown's best season in years. And all these guys are leaving or have left. And some of these situations have been very strange, like the McClung situation. Do you remember how weird that got last year? So Patrick Ewing on May 5th, 2020, told Andy Katz on the March Madness 365 podcast that McClung was coming back for the next season. 
But McClung's agency then tweeted that he had not notified anyone at Georgetown that he was withdrawing from the 2020 NBA draft. Uh, Patrick was asked about this by the Washington Post, said that McClung was still trying to get feedback from the NBA, got asked if there had been a miscommunication. Patrick said, yeah, I guess maybe I spoke too soon. Then came the news, May 13th, that McClung was transferring, ultimately went to Texas Tech, averaged 15 and a half points per game for Texas Tech this season. And how about this from McClung also on May 13th? This was to ESPN NBA draft insider Jonathan Gavoni. Quote, it was a number of different events that made me feel I had no choice but to transfer from Georgetown. I really wanted to stay, but things throughout my career made me realize that I couldn't. I'm looking for a place I can call home, a place I can be a part of, a family, and help them succeed. End quote. Look, I'm willing to always say, like, it's not necessarily Patrick's fault or the program's fault. Like, sometimes these kids get bad advice. Sometimes these kids are are warped themselves. Like, you don't know. But this is not just, like, one or two instances of this. This is now a bunch of instances, and it's uh, a bunch of instances with key guys. Again, McClung, Akinjo, LeBlanc, Nawahab. It's not good. Doesn't reflect well on Patrick. It doesn't reflect well on the Hoyas program. Now, I get it. In today's day and age in college basketball, a lot of guys transfer. You know, the, the saying now is you got to recruit kids every year, i.e. you recruit a kid to come to your program, and then you got to re-recruit him after his freshman season, re-recruit him after his sophomore season, etc. Because you know, there's almost like a free agency now in college sports where, you know, guys transfer a ton. So this isn't just like exclusive to Georgetown. Yes, but it does seem to be happening a whole heck of a lot with Georgetown. And again, with some very key players. And again, with Wahab, it's like you're a big man at a school that is notorious for producing quality big men. Your head coach is one of the best big men in both college basketball and NBA history. And yet you want out. What's going on with that? Why is that the case? A lot of unanswered questions right now with the Georgetown Hoyas. All right, that will do it for you and me. A marathon installment of the Al Galdi podcast. But that's good. It's good to go into the weekend with a lengthier show. This way you got all weekend uh, to enjoy that which we do on this podcast. Also remember, you can catch up on things we've been talking about. Tons of Mark Turgeon talk on Tuesday's installment of the podcast. That's episode 23. Ben Standing, Washington football team insider for the Athletic DC. He was great talking about the WFT on Wednesday's podcast. That was episode 24, including the juicy nugget Ben has had on Washington looking at Steven Montez as potentially being the team's version of Taysom Hill. I found that fascinating, so definitely want to check that out if you haven't already. And some good stuff on Thursday's podcast with Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington on the State of the Wiz. Uh, that would be episode 25. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at Yahoo. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. That's very, very hard to do. You should Google that. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.